Welcome to the Agile Book Club podcast, where we hang out and talk shop with the authors whose ideas are shaping the agile landscape. Here is your host, Paul Clip. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the 77th episode of the Agile Book Club podcast. I'm going to keep it short today because the rest of this interview is is going to run a little longer than these podcasts have been going lately. So I'm just going to remind you that we are going to be hearing the second half of my interview with Alan Kelly, the author of Succeeding with OKRs and Agile. We were talking about the second edition of this classic book that just came out recently. And if you haven't heard the first half of the interview in which we talk high level, with Alan, then please go back to episode 76 and give that a listen. But if you're ready for a deep dive, because this is this is what the second half of the interview is. It's a deep dive into the content of the book in order for me to prove that I actually read it. No, it's, it, it, it's to deliver as much value to you as possible. We're going to be doing a deep dive with the author into some of the intriguing concepts and ideas in this book. So let's get right to it. Here is Alan Kelly. Now, now, taking a deep dive into the book, there are a number of things that I wanted to dig into a bit more, some just for very, very personal, selfish reasons, because they could be useful to me right now, and uh, and others because they resonated with me, and, and I wanted to explore them a bit more for the sake of our, our audience, who I have to keep in mind, because they're good people, they keep coming back and listening, and uh, I got to show my appreciation by remembering that they exist, and not just having fun with my own topics. Where we left it, you were talking about key results as acceptance criteria. Could you explain how that metaphor helps people to write better key results? So measurable in the first instance, you know, if if a key result doesn't have a number in, uh, it may not be wrong, but it probably is. You know, it's a red flag. Um, And we want our um, key results... You know, they are like the same way that if you're writing a test, you need to have something that go, makes it go red. You need to have a reason for it to go green. And key results are just like that. You're now thinking, what can I, what can I, what difference can I see? What, what makes this go red? What makes this go green? How can I write this key result? So it reflects the change, and the change is the change I want to see, or the change is not is not a negative change. It's gone red. So, and I think in said in the software sector, a lot of people are already tuned in to thinking about tests and think perhaps even thinking test first or test later. Um, and so I think mapping key results into that space, you're building on something they've already done, plus. You're giving them something quite concrete rather than just this term key result, which, you know, just by itself is a little bit ill-defined. Now you're saying, no, this is your acceptance criteria. Now, where key results do differ a bit from your traditional red-green tests is, and I say this in the book, I'd like your key results to be analog, not binary. So I think there's, you can meet them to a degree. And tests, we want to be binary. We want to be red or green. Whereas key results, I want you to say we've gone this far. So if your key result says system completes within 10 minutes, 
I don't want I don't want the key result written in such a time terms that that is absolute. I want the team to be able to say, you know what, we're halfway through the cycle. We are haven't got it to ten minutes yet. We've got it to twelve minutes, but we can see that as an awful lot of work to do to take it to ten minutes. And now we can go and have a cost benefit conversation with the stakeholders, with the product owner, or we can just put it to one side, put our focus somewhere else, and if we've got time at the end, double back. So I think it's important that key results are are analog. And that you know in OKRs people often talk about moonshot thinking. I think if your if your key results are purely binary, then you either get to the moon or you don't. If you don't get to the moon, you failed. But because we want to say aiming for the moon is a way of making us go higher than we would have done if we'd, we'd aimed low, you want the key results to be kind of measurable. And, and that is one of the areas in which um, there's a whole lot of it depends language in your book. Um, you you share some – you suggest that uh, a team should never have more than four objectives and an objective should never have more than four key results. We're going to get into reasons why it might be or should be less than that. But when a team is looking at four objectives, each with four key results, and so they've got 16 key results to deliver in 13 weeks, meaning that they have to deliver more than one of them a week, at which point, and and, and they're prioritized. So this objective is more important than this objective is more important than this objective. How does a team balance all of these these priorities and all of this work when there's this fuzzy bit in which maybe it's okay to get 70% of the way or maybe it's okay to deliver only three of the four key results? Yes. <laughs> I would love to give you some hard and fast rules, but I also know that the world is a very variable place. And you and I and your listeners work in very different places. And in some places, you know, they, they will buy into that 70% is good. I also know in some places, you know, people are only interested in 100% or nothing. You know, for all the ambition agenda in OKRs, I've also experienced it when when other teams or other stakeholders demand that OKRs are absolutely cast iron guaranteed and will go there. And there's good reason why sometimes you want to set an OKR which is is guaranteed. But if you're going to set something that's guaranteed, you can't be ambitious at the same time they're opposites. So a lot really boils down to your environment. It's also going to boil down to the stakeholders, the customers, the people who are, who are around. And I don't think we can come up with hard and fast rules. It has to be a conversation. You know, we always used to say about user stories. They're a placeholder for a conversation. So I think key results also build on conversations. And actually, in the original OKR book, John Doe and Measure What Matters, buried in the back, he's got another bit about uh, conversations, feedback, and what's the third thing? Was it review? Mm-hmm. He He also acknowledges conversations. But we tend to ignore them. So I honestly don't know what your work environment is like. I don't know how far you can go. And so I have to put my hands and say, look, rather than give you a hard and fast rule, you know, which I think you'll end up breaking one day, I'm going to say you're human. You have to make a judgment here. 
it depends. You know, it struck me when, when reading your book, and I want to hear your, your, your thoughts on this, that the perfect time for that conversation would be, and, and it would address one of the things that's, that's very problematic typically about sprint reviews, which is they turn into demos. A really good place for that conversation is the sprint review or the service delivery review when you've got the stakeholders in the room and you can say, is this good enough? Can we move on to the next thing? Yes, ab- absolutely. Yeah, um, <laughs> we we my my fear when we talk about sprints running in in twelve thirteen week cycles is people defer delivery and demo until the thirteenth week. <laughs> I I absolutely don't want that. As with Scrum, you know, delivery and demos every two weeks, or better still, continuous delivery. Be continuing, you know, delivering and and demoing all the way through it. Um, but when you've got the attention of stakeholders. That is the time to have those conversations. You don't want to defer those conversations to the the end. So get them together, have those conversations. And often, you know, people don't know what they want until they see it. Until you actually show your stakeholders, until you demo them something working, they aren't really sure what they want. And also, if you're coming from a, should we say, a more traditional environment, there's often been a negative feedback loop and the more the people don't trust the delivery team, the more they up their demands. They feel as though they need ask for more. They need to ask for it to be faster, cheaper, better, and just quantity more in order to get anything. And when they start to see things are actually working, things are actually delivered, then actually the whole conversation about what are we building and what our priorities changes completely. So I can completely see that you go in with with four OKRs prioritized perfectly and the value assigned and all the rest. Four weeks in, you demo the most important thing. It's half done. And your stakeholders say, okay, yeah, let's move on to the next thing. I'm completely open to that. Okay. Um, And and so that that leads us, I mean, after the sprint review, you walk into the sprint planning. And uh, I wonder if you could share some ideas about what the role of of OKRs is in a sprint planning session. Because traditionally, it's been working with a prioritized backlog. What what is throwing OKRs in the mix due to it? So um, the simple way is you use the OKRs to prioritize the backlog. Okay? And I'll, I'll leave that there. My preferred way, the way I would advocate, is to throw your backlog away. And I would reorientate the whole planning meeting around the OKRs. So you go into the planning meeting, do a check on where you are with the OKRs, which ones are are looking problematic, which ones haven't you started, blah, blah, whatever you need to do. And then, yeah, and I want your product owner in or product manager, whoever in the room, you know, check that the one you think is priority right now still is the priority. Because it could be six weeks ago you've set them. And you know what? The world's an uncertain place. Things could have changed. And then I want to use that OKR and say, right, what do we need to do to advance on this OKR? So as I say, I'm happy to throw the backlog away or at least put it in the back seat. And I then view the OKRs as a just-in-time story generator. Yeah. So this is classic lean. We are replacing an inventory of stories with a just-in-time approach that delivers the stories we need to do just when we need them. 
So when you're sitting in that planning meeting and you've reasserted what the priorities are, you scratch your head and you say, what do we need to do to step forward with this OKR in the next two weeks? And you write out whatever stories you need to do. Now, if you have an old backlog and there's a suitable story in it, by all means, pick it out. But if you've got a backlog of 500 items, it's probably going to take you longer to find it than it is to write out a new one. So, you know, that's also a good place to have those conversations about what are the stories. You know? um, so I would reorientate the whole planning meeting around the OKRs and use them as a just-in-time story generator. So while we're talking about backlogs, and, and, and I like your idea about um, putting, putting the back back in backlog, I'm, I'm going to steal that. Um, yes. Putting the backlog in the backseat. That kind of leads as well to another another topic that you deal with, and it's problematic and 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 touchy, and you've got some pretty strong opinions on, and that is keeping the lights on, BAU. Yeah. What What does a team do when when half their job is maintenance and support, and suddenly they're getting high priority OKRs? Yeah. So if I'm passionate about it in the book, it's because that team I worked with a few years ago had to do this. And everyone was complaining about the upgrades the team wanted to do to the system. And why are you upgrading this library and blah, blah, blah. And then one day, one of the devs pointed out that the library we were upgrading to the latest release had been involved in, was it the Panama Papers hack? And there was a great big security hole all the time we had this this library in place. And you could almost see the look on the manager's face. You know, just nobody had put it in those terms. Until that moment, it appeared like the devs wanted to do something the devs wanted to do. And once it was explained that there was a security hole in the library, and as a matter of course, we needed to keep our libraries up to date to keep our security holes closed. It changed. And the thing is, you know, if you look at traditional project management, and if you even look at um, at least the early Scrum guides, perhaps they've changed in the later ones, even in Scrum, there's this idea that you can separate the shiny new stuff, the project work, if you like, from the business as usual, keeping the lights on maintenance and support. And you can ring fence a team to do shiny new stuff. And look, it's wonderful when that can happen. And there's ways you can do it. You can separate out part of the team. You can guard part of the team. But you know what? I've almost never seen it happen. This is so ingrained. Even our accountants talk about CapEx and OpEx. It's the same idea. And keeping the existing stuff working is somehow seen as secondary. It's seen as work that shouldn't happen. Perhaps it's because of this myth that once you've written software and you've tested it and shipped it, it's done. You know, the truth is software goes off. If you don't pay attention to it, it goes off and it smells. Security holes is the most obvious one I can point to. Um, so I've certainly experienced with multiple teams this how do we cope with new shiny project work that everyone's interested in and everyone wants to deliver and this support maintenance BAU stuff, which 
if we don't do, the thing we've currently got is going to fall to pieces. So actually, it's interesting. I only realized a few weeks ago that I've got the same idea or the same problem is there in my Zampan book. I, I talked about business as usual work, and I think I talked about yellow cards there, urgent but unplanned. So I had to deal with this. When I was working with OKRs, we had to deal with this. And the problem was that if you do, like most of the OKR books say, and you, you talk about the, the shiny new stuff in your OKRs, that's all great, except you get to the end of the quarter, and people say, why haven't you delivered these OKRs? And you say, well... I was firefighting. The house was on fire. We had a security hall. Somebody invaded my country. You know, I had to do stuff. I said, but, but come on, your OKRs? You told me you were committed to your OKRs. And the team, the engineers, are on a losing streak there. So um, although it goes against a lot of OKR advice, in the OKRs, I want to put an OKR and we can call it an OKR zero, if you like, a baseline. I want to put an OKR there so that when we are talking to stakeholders and leaders, we're saying, in addition to doing all the new shiny stuff, we have to um, answer support desk calls, provide third line support, keep our security libraries up to date, make sure the database doesn't overflow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'll give you an example of where this has gone wrong in the UK at the moment, we've had a little crisis, which some listeners may have heard about. We've had to close 150 schools. And we've closed 150 schools because they use the wrong type of concrete. In the 1970s and 80s, they used this particular concrete, which isn't very good and can collapse. Um, so they've had to emergency close 150 schools. So the question is, why is the UK use this concrete and no one else in Europe? Or, or the US. It turns out you have. This concrete exists in, in Poland, Sweden, the US. But if you use this concrete, you need to monitor it. You need to maintain it because this concrete is prone to going off. And periodically, you need to support it or even replace it. Well, for, sorry to get political here for UK readers, but the last 10 or 15 years, the UK government has stopped all that expenditure. And so other countries carried on checking on their concrete. Yet they, the business as usual is checking on the concrete. And we've tried to stamp it out in the UK. And now we have to close the schools because the roofs are falling in. <laughs> this is why I get passionate. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I can see why, why a lot of agilists would react negatively to the idea of an objective zero. And, and I would too. But what I like about it is that it's, it's still broad because the key results are set by the team. So they decide what what business as usual is going to be, be the focus for the quarter, what technical debt is going to be the focus for the quarter. But it also adds something that, that those things usually don't have, which is success criteria. So why are you doing it and how good does it have to be actually gets documented and, and shared out. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're flagging up where your capacity is going and the standard of service you're providing. And actually, the word we should have used so far is this is DevOps. You know, you built it, you run it. If you don't allow for business as usual, somehow you are saying no DevOps. Now, most of the, uh, shall we say, the, the better businesses I've encountered in the few, last few years have embraced DevOps. So if you don't allow for business as usual, no DevOps. 
I'll let you think that one through. <laughs> Very nice. All right, let's get in some practicalities here because I have worked in organizations from 200 people to 10,000 people who used OKRs. I have never, and and hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, I have never been satisfied with with the way it's been done. I have never seen it done efficiently. I've never seen it take take less than a month or two, and I've never seen it done on time. And so my two questions are, and, and let's, let's talk about large organizations because a lot of people do work in very large organizations. They're large because they employ a lot of people. So when, when you've got an, an organization that's got six divisions and each division has, has half a dozen product lines and each product line has half a dozen products and each product has 10, 15 teams. So you're looking at, at the bottom of the organization, literally thousands upon thousands of OKRs. How do you do what you talk about in the book of, of doing all of this, not only doing them, not only creating them, but communicating them upward and getting the downward, downward validation that they're in line with the objectives of the organization in the last two weeks of the quarter? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant question. And we, we should say the complete answer is not in the book. We're kind of going beyond the book here, but it's something that I've been giving a lot of thought to. And so to get a bit bit philosophical for a moment. We'll, we'll come back to the practical very quickly. I've come to realize that um, when we scale up, when we scale up, we revert to type and we go back to planning. I don't just mean you and me. I mean, as an industry, perhaps even as a society, when we start talking bigger, People run back to planning. They don't know how to deal with, with, with you know, organizing, say, hundreds of teams without somebody issuing a master plan or, you know, devising some form of planning mechanism. But remember, planning is a form of control. So the moment you start doing that, you're undermining the basis of your teams. Now, what I've realized is that there in the Agile Manifesto is the word emergence, and emergence is a really powerful concept. What we don't know as an industry, even perhaps as a society, is how to work with large-scale emergence. Actually, let me step back. As a society, we do know how to work with large-scale emergence. It's called the market economy and democracy. But certainly within an organization, we have a problem with large-scale emergence. So if we want to keep our teams independent and autonomous and self-organizing, we have to find a way of allowing emergence into our organizations at a big scale. So very practically for a moment, let's get some practical stuff. I don't see why it all has to be done in the last two weeks of the quarter. I think if if we've got teams that are going along and are regularly resetting their OKRs every 12 weeks, say, why do all the teams need to do it at the end of the quarter? Why can't they do it asynchronously? Because all the teams have OKRs, and at any given point in time, a team can look at the organizational OKRs that are there today, and they can look at the OKRs of the teams they're working with, and they can look at what their customers are saying. And they can devise their own OKRs and they can share them around and get feedback and they can set them. If you're doing this en masse, the first thing I'd want to relax is, is that synchronization. Um, now, 
that's obviously going to cause a problem if some of the, the more broad ones change. But you're going to have that problem one way or another anyway. If this, if everybody's trying to do it this quarter, and if two weeks before the, the quarter, the CEO says we're going in a radically different direction, everyone's got a big problem. So actually, if we desynchronize the teams, then you, you're going to have less of a peak. Now, there may be some teams that still want to do theirs in close proximity, do theirs together even. But why do you need 100 teams to set them at the same time? The other thing I'm going to say is that we're going to get more control by doing less. And the leaders of the organizations need to be more, shall we say, trusting of the teams. And instead of trying to give them orders, we're going to let them off the leash. We're going to say, the leaders are going to say, Here's our here's our big company purpose. Here's our strategy. Here are our missions. Maybe here's our annual OKR for the whole organization. And now teams out there, how can you contribute to this goal? And the teams themselves have the most information about what customers are asking for, about what their technology can do, what the teams that are connected to them, that are interrelated to, what those teams need. and the teams are best placed to set their own OKRs with reference to how do we advance on the overall company goals. And so I think we allow emergence. Now, the thing we have to do is go and debug that process. So now we have 100 teams who've all set OKRs or are setting OKRs. And we want to say, as part of the, the review process of the OKRs, when, when we're setting them, do these OKRs advance on the corporate goals, on the annual OKR? Do these OKRs from Team A support the goals of Team B? And because OKRs are all in a standardized format, we can start to have those conversations. And you could start to build a graph. In fact, this morning I was talking to somebody who's got a similar idea, and they've created a tool which allows you to draw lines between different teams and drill into their OKRs. So rather than somebody trying to plan out a tree, a hierarchy of OKRs that people will be doing, what we're going to say is everybody set OKRs and let's see if we can build a tree out of them. Because this is the key thing, where they don't connect, that's information, that's an advantage, that's something to work with. If you've got a team over here and their OKRs don't line up to the rest of the organization, that's not a problem. You don't want to stamp it out. You want to have a conversation. You want to say to this team, how do your OKRs contribute? Because maybe they've seen something nobody else has. Maybe they've heard from a customer who's got a different need. Potentially their product is disconnected, you know, but potentially they've got information which nobody else has or they've got a different viewpoint. So we allow for diversity here. And if the leadership have clearly spelt out the ultimate goals and the missions and the strategy and all the rest of it, then in theory, everyone's going to set aligned goals. And when someone doesn't, what you're saying is that message either hasn't got through or is not applicable. And if we understand either of those things, we're going to be a better organization. So I've taken the calling OKRs as a strategic debugger. Now, no, no argument at all. If you've got a hundred teams or a thousand teams, heaven forbid, you've got a big problem. You know, you know, that's a more general problem. OKRs aren't going to solve every problem in the world. 
you're going to have to modularize your organization. Um, I'm a big fan of a technique that came out of Japan uh, called amoeba management. And it is literally that you split your organization into a set of amoebas and you give them their own financial control. And ultimately, you could take your amoebas all the way down to team level. So OKRs can help. They can give you insights, but they aren't going to solve everything. So what you're saying resonates with with um, what I was thinking at the time when I was reading this and thinking about the same thing, which is that I want to re- reflect this uh, and see what, see what you think, is that it's really, if if that's your problem, if if your challenge is that teams are, when you give teams the autonomy to set their own OKRs, they're running in different directions. That's a leadership problem, not an OKR problem. Yes. And and the, the question becomes, in my mind, the way I'm thinking about it, if, if at the top level, the leadership says to all of these teams all over the world, we want to grow revenue. Well, they'll find a thousand different ways to grow revenue. If they say we want to grow revenue through market expansion, then they might have teams all deciding to enter different markets. You might have have the team that's doing the the um, translation, translating all of the software into to Chinese, while the marketing team is trying to figure out how to enter India, <laughs> and 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 the payments team is aligning their payment systems to Indonesian banks. So so then you take it to the next level, where which which is where the top management says, okay, all of you we're going to expand revenue, increase revenue twofold by entering the Chinese market. And and at some point, it ceases to become strategy and becomes command and control. And so it's it's finding that point at which the teams have just enough information to align. Yes, yes, but at least at least when you got one team translating to Chinese and another team and preparing to market in Africa, at least they've got OKRs there and they're stated and they're explicit, and somebody can look at them both. And say, you know what? These two things don't match. You've, you've now got a problem. You can, you can, you can make the problem visible. You know, so often in organizations, the strategy is not visible. The strategy, if there is a strategy, it's poorly communicated. Teams are pursuing their own agendas. They're not aligned because nobody has ever pointed out to them that the other teams are doing something different because the other teams are, are pursuing an agenda which is in the mind of the product owner. But, you know, apart from a mind transplant, the marketing team aren't going to know that. At least with OKRs, we have a standardized format for putting these down and we can make the problem visible. So my last question to wrap this up is it strikes me that when an organization implements OKRs, there are three things that they have to learn to do well and they probably won't do it the first time. One of them is writing good OKRs. The second is communicating and aligning them. And the third is adopting the leadership style to to support team autonomy. And one of the challenges I see with OKRs is if you're doing it quarterly, it's really hard and you only get to practice four times a year. And so if it takes you, you know, a dozen times to get good at it, that's three years. Yes. <laughs> Do you yes. have any advice for magnifying and optimizing learning during yeah. the process. So so first off, I think unfortunately, we have to accept that if you're going to have a large organization, 
it may well take three years to get good at something. And maybe that's a reason for having a smaller organization, or shall we say a more agile organization. And if you want an agile organization, which is large, that's going to come with some extra costs. But anyway, back back to your original question. So one, one of the things, I think I say this in the book, is how about having shorter OKR cycles? And this is something I've done repeatedly successfully with, with teams and scrums. You know, instead of running two week sprints, we run one week sprints. And after they've done six one week sprints and they've got the hang of it, then we can run two week sprints. And so the same with OKRs. You know, they're, although it's conventional that OKR quarters, OKRs run on quarters, which should be 13 weeks, but often 12 weeks or 14 weeks, you know, th- that, that's not sacrosanct. And so I'd, I would want to, if I was introducing OKRs afresh in an organization, I'd want to run, oh, excuse me, six week cycles for the first, for the first two times. Because the, the new bit is, is the setting and, and the closing off and re changing how you, how you go about your delivery. And you get to practice that more if you do two cycles in the time you could have done one cycle. And you know, you get two retrospectives. I like that. I like that. And and what's more, of course, it reduces the temptation to have four or five OKRs. Yes. If you're doing it um, every six weeks, for example, you could say, okay, we're going to do it more often, but we're not going to invest as much time and energy into the OKR creation and, and, and communication process because we don't have to have as many OKRs. That's lovely. Yes. All right. We are at time. Let me let me uh, ask the the. My, my, my final question, and I ask this of everyone, is there something you really wanted me to touch on that, that slipped through the holes? Let's see. We talked about OKRs as a strategy debugger. We talked about OKRs as an acceptance criteria. We talked about not doing them as a task breakdown. We talked about the importance of autonomy and emergence. You know, I, the only what, what I'm going to add is something um, I say about Agile in general, and I think it's going to apply OKRs. You know, Ultimately, it's all about learning. And for me, the only thing you can do wrong in Agile is to do it the same as you did three months ago. You should always be seeking out learning opportunities, putting those opportunities into action. Sometimes it won't work out and you'll want to unwind. But, you know, if continuous improvement means anything, it means that you're continually trying to do things different so that's the only thing i'm going to add to this conversation i think we we touched on for me what are the key points well i hope you all enjoyed that conversation with alan kelly the author of succeeding with okrs and agile second edition as much as i enjoyed having it i'll add a link to all of alan's details and where to get the book in the show notes I'm really excited about my next interview. In two weeks, I'm going to be talking to Elena Astiaros about her book, Invisible Leader, Facilitation Secrets for Catalyzing Change, Cultivating Innovation, and Commanding Results. It was published by Sense and Respond Press, and I haven't seen them publish anything that wasn't terrific yet. And what's more, I chose it because it's a short book. Why is that important? Well, because of the summer break that this podcast took, we're a little bit of a little bit out of sync. We do two podcasts about each book each month, but the first one is on the 15th of the month and the second one is on the first of the next month. So in order to get back into sync, 
I'm going to do one interview about a short book in two weeks, and then the next book we'll be talking about in December will be back in sync with the first interview on December 1st and the second interview on December 15th. So join me in two weeks to talk to the author of Invisible Leader. I think it's going to be a great conversation. She's a podcaster as well, and she does a lot of public speaking, and so she's she's going to be a lot of fun to talk to. And if that's not enough for you, if you need more, you can find all of the old episodes, all 70-plus of the old episodes from the last many seasons at patreon.com slash agilebookclub. All of our episodes are available to all all of our patron supporters, or you can buy entire seasons if you want to for just a buck an episode. I appreciate the support of the costs of running this podcast. And that's all. Thank you so much for joining. See you back here in two weeks.